Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes, we've done more than 50 now, on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Grant, Tom Junot, Catherine Miles, Lane DeGregory, Christopher Gofford, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Don Venata, a senior writer for ESPN Digital and Print Media. Venata was recently named a finalist, along with his reporting and writing partner, Seth Wickersham, for a National Magazine Award in reporting for three of their stories including one that dug into the fact the Oakland Raiders were moving to Las Vegas. And to get inside that deal um, required a lot of tough reporting. We had to get inside the Raiders. We had to get inside uh, Sheldon Adelson's group and then also understand the way the rubber hits the road and the way power is exercised in Nevada. Venata has had quite the illustrious career. He's been on three Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting teams, two at the New York Times and one at the Miami Herald. He joined ESPN in 2012 and has since produced many features and investigative pieces centered around the NFL. His profile of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in August 2014 is particularly amazing because of the access he got from a subject who initially did not want to participate. In 2014, Venata started up the Sunday Long Read newsletter with Jacob Feldman, a reporter for Sports Illustrated. The two launched the Sunday Long Read podcast in August of last year, and so far has produced more than a dozen episodes featuring some amazing reporters and writers. Venata is currently working on a book with Wickersham. The book, tentatively titled Powerball, will be published by Crown Archetype in 2020. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Venata's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangritapodcast.com. Don, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you. Uh, congratulations, first off, on uh, being a finalist for the National Magazine Awards for reporting. Well, thank you. That was such a pleasant surprise. Um, I found out about it uh, while I was having lunch in Minneapolis the week before the Super Bowl with, with Seth Wickersham, uh, my co-finalist and so Seth is the person who broke the news to me and it was it was really a treat to be with Seth when uh, word came over the wire about that 
Yeah, you and uh, the three stories that you and Seth uh, worked on, and and I want to take a, a a quick caveat uh, to let everyone know that Seth Wickersham, uh, former Gangry the podcast guest, uh, all the way back on episode twenty eight, uh, which is still online at gangrythepodcast.com. dot um, the, the three stories that you and Seth worked on that are mentioned or that were part of the entry were um, uh, the, the, the piece on the Raiders moving to Oakland, uh, the, the story about the aftermath inside the NFL after the player protests, and the story about Roger uh, Goodell and Jerry Jones. Um, uh, uh, I think that was immediately after or in the aftermath of a lot of aftermath in the NFL. Um, uh, the Ezekiel Elliott suspension. Um, yes. out, of, out of those three stories, do you have a favorite? I well, it's it's hard to choose. I love all three of them equally. I think I, I I would give a slight edge to the first piece, the Vegas Raiders story, because uh, the degree of difficulty on that was particularly high in trying to get inside that deal. Um, you know, the seven hundred and fifty million dollars that was. Um, granted to the Raiders by the state of Nevada is a record for public money to go to a stadium. And to get inside that deal um, required a lot of tough reporting. We had to get inside the Raiders. We had to get inside uh, Sheldon Adelson's group and then also understand the way the rubber hits the road and the way power is exercised in Nevada. And I think I think we were able to hit all those targets and really bring people bring readers inside those rooms when those decisions were made. Uh, and, of course, a running theme through all three of the stories is Jerry Jones, who uh, the Cowboys owner who is, uh, despite having some setbacks in recent months, is still one of the most influential people in the NFL, uh, arguably the most powerful owner, and he played an outsized role in the move uh, from Oakland to Las Vegas that the Raiders uh, were able to engineer and that Mark Davis, the owner, was able to engineer. So I think of the three, um, I, I really do like that story, and I just like the way the story is told. I think it's a, it's a fun read. Yeah, I uh, and you uh, you wrote a profile on Jerry Jones um, back in 2014, which I want to talk with you a little bit uh, here, here in a little bit, um, in terms of that story uh, on um, the Las Vegas move, though, how long did that take you and Seth to, to work on? Well, we started talking about uh, trying to do a piece uh, on that subject as early as the early fall uh, of the previous year, of 2016. We were actually together in Los Angeles for a few days of reporting, and Seth, Seth tells it much better than I do, but we were actually on the beach uh, in Santa Monica, walking after breakfast and just sort of uh, talking back and forth and brainstorming about different ideas and different stories in the NFL that we could pursue together. And I had raised the possibility of doing a story about the Raiders' move to Vegas. It wasn't a done deal yet, but it certainly looked like it was going to happen. And Seth and I had done a story about the Rams' move to Los Angeles together um, earlier that year, and I think I think Seth's initial reaction was, "Well, let's not do another move of a team. We already did one, and he, he wasn't that interested." And over the course of that fall, we both sort of gathered string. We were working on other stories, but we gathered string on the piece. And then by December 
we really full-time devoted ourselves to the piece. So I would say three months um, uh, of us working full-time on it, but we had started gathering string for it as early as September, October, the previous autumn. Yeah, now, so um, Seth, uh, when I had him on the show, we talked about his um, profile of YA Tittle, um, which I still think is one of the most amazing um, profiles that have been written in a long time. I, I agree. So it's, a, it's a phenomenal piece of work. I agree with you. How did the two of you start working together? And, and do you remember what the first story that you two worked on together was? I do. I, I actually remember um, I had joined ESPN in 2012, and I believe I met Seth late that year in Bristol in uh, our then editor Chad Millman's office. Chad was the editor at the time of ESPN the magazine. And we met in his office and we talked about the possibility of trying to work together. Um, I was interested in writing some in-depth stories about the NFL. And, of course, Seth, as, as you say, had a deep background in writing profiles and feature stories about the NFL going back 15 years at that point. And we didn't really have the opportunity to do uh, something together until 2015 during the Deflategate saga and Tom Brady's four-game suspension when we were sort of brainstorming and decided that we were going to try to really figure out what was actually happening with that suspension. Uh, it was clear it was some unfinished business from Spygate and the way owners uh, around the league um, had viewed Roger Goodell going easy on the Patriots and on Robert Kraft. Uh, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, who helped Roger Goodell get his job as commissioner in 2006 and was sort of a patron of his, um, and so we dug into that, and, and that story is a piece of work that uh, I'm maybe most proud of, certainly one of the stories I'm most proud of since joining ESPN. The story was published in September of 2015. It's about 12,000 words, and it digs very deeply into what really happened with Spygate, the legacy of cheating by the Patriots going all the way back to 2000. Uh, and that's a story that Seth and I did together and worked on from the late spring of 2015 all the way up to when that story was published in September of 2015. So um, that's that story is kind of the basis of the book that you two are working on. Is that correct? It's it's one of the it's one of the stories that I, I guess is the sort of uh, foundation of the book that we're doing. Uh, I think all of the works that Seth and I have done together, because we've done a number of pieces since then together, um, was the genesis of the book. Uh, the book is uh, tentatively entitled Powerball, and the idea for the book is to try, as our stories do, to bring readers behind the scenes of the way power is exercised in the NFL, take them into the league office, take them into the boardrooms and the league office meeting rooms, um, and uh, really describe the characters of the owners, uh, Roger Goodell and other league executives, and uh, you know how they clash, um, how there's sort of interesting cliques that have developed, um, you know, how they get things that they want and how sometimes they don't get things that they want. And, uh, and really, I think the, the timing of the book is going to cover the Roger Goodell era. Goodell became commissioner in September of 2006. I think the book will cover um, that entire period, the Goodell era in the NFL, which is a fascinating period of uh, exponential growth and now in recent years some declines and some key metrics and a lot of worries about 
the future of pro football. So it's a big, ambitious book that we're doing together. Um, but the book will not be published until 2020. So we're still uh, a couple of years away from when you'll be able to find it in bookstores. The uh, w- When you're working on, uh, whether it's a- an individual piece or a book, um, do you, do you each have specific tasks? How how does the the labor break down between between you and Seth? That's a great question. Seth and I are fortunate that we have uh, a pretty deep list of sources in the league, but they're separate. Seth sort of has his people, and I have my people. I mean, there are a number of sources that we share, but for the most part. Um, we have a long list of folks that we're able to draw information from uh, separate and apart from each other. So it works when you're collaborating with somebody because you get a wide variety of information, opinions, takes on things and why things are happening. Each story is different. Uh, In the Raiders story, we sort of divided it up sort of along those lines, but then we had to go and find some new sources as well, and we just sort of divvy it up and share the workload on reporting. And then the writing, we're fortunate that we work, we write really well together. We'll, in the process of writing, we'll split up chapters. Uh, Seth will take a handful of chapters to write the first draft of, and then I'll take a handful of chapters and a story to take the first cut at. And then we share them, and we try our best to make sure the stories read in one voice. And um, our voices are not exactly the same, so that can be a challenge at times. But I think that in the past we have been able to pull off, um, you know, writing a, writing these stories in a, in a single voice, despite the fact that we're we're, we're two writers with uh, with different styles. I think that is one thing that's impressive um, about the stories that you two work on is is that singular voice. Um, which is, which is hard to get when, when you got two people, um, who are writing and who have had long and successful careers writing as well, um, for various reasons. Um, do you, do you, I, this is like a nerdy question, but like, do you use Google docs or, or like, how are you mailing each other your stories? <laughs> um, how, how does that, I'm like incredibly interested in the logistics of it. Well, the, well, I can, well, with any story, uh, as you know, Matt, the first toughest decision is the architecture of the story and and sort of how best to tell the story and and on that we'll just have conversations and we might map out rough outlines in word files that we'll share with each other via email um Seth and I talk all the time though so often this those early conversations are done less in writing and more just in brainstorming on the phone or in person uh, or via text, even. I mean, we'll do sometimes late at night texting back and forth about the best way to start a story or the best way to structure a story. But once we have the architecture down, then it then it sort of falls to what are the best chapters, which of us has more of the reporting that will animate a chapter. And so then we'll divvy it up based more on that, more on, less on sort of stylistic concerns and more about who's got a better mastery of the material for that particular chapter and to take the first cut at it, to get that first draft down. And any first draft, any writer will tell you, is usually garbage. And, and, so, and, and it is in our case, too. You're still sort of fumbling around to figure out the best way to tell the story, the best voice to tell the story. Um, you're not always certain what to put in and what to leave out. 
so our first drafts that we will share with each other, again, via Word file uh, through email, I mean, we don't use Google Docs. We, we just sort of, in an old-school way, will write the chapters um, on our laptops and then just share the chapters with each other. Uh, I'll, I'll share my chapters with him. He'll literally get into them and start writing through them, and I do the same with his. Uh, and cut things out. We do an edit trace so we can follow each other's fixes. And that's how it sort of begins to take shape. And through that process of writing and rewriting and, and editing each other, we're constantly talking. And sometimes, you know, an argument will develop or a disagreement will develop over what one of us thinks is important and the other doesn't or an emphasis or things like that. But for the most part, I have to say, Seth is such a good guy and, and a really, really smart guy about stories and, and narrative that we, we don't have too many disagreements and arguments. We more often than not agree. There's not much ego during the process, and we um, trust each other's judgment uh, on the reporting side and on the writing side. And so more often than not, it's, it's pretty easy and pretty effortless when it could easily go south. Uh, let's talk about, uh, at least one of your stories that you wrote, um, uh, by yourself. Um, and that is the profile that you did of Jerry Jones, uh, which was headline Jerry football, I believe. Right. Uh, yes. and, and that ran in August of 2014. Um, I, I'm really, the, the story is so, um, incredibly in depth. Um, and you had so much access, uh, to Jerry Jones. How did the whole thing come about? Well, it came about because Jerry Jones uh, was widely seen and still is as one of the most powerful NFL owners, maybe one of the most powerful people in American sports. And we decided at the network that we were going to do a multi-platform profile of him. Uh, a number of editors, it was the idea of editors, not of mine, to do a piece for Outside the Lines, a television piece that would go in-depth uh, about him as well as a, a piece for the magazine. And um, so I began reporting that in the spring of 2014, But and I tell this story in the story because uh, it was one of those situations where Jerry Jones was not going to cooperate. So somebody who you know gives access pretty freely, does a weekly radio show after every game, is the only NFL owner who will do impromptu press conferences you know, in the locker room or right outside the locker room, um, was not willing, because, of course, he's also the general manager of the Cowboys, not just the owner and the president, but he, he, was, he was not inclined to cooperate with this project. Um, it, at the time of doing this, it was just after the 25th anniversary of Jerry Jones buying the Cowboys. So there had been a whole run of stories in the Dallas media and elsewhere about that 25th anniversary earlier that year of, of Jerry buying the Cowboys. Um, so uh, Rich Dalrymple, the flack for the Cowboys, the longtime PR guy, when I reached out to him to propose this project, first he didn't get back to me for a while, and when he finally did, he sighed heavily into the phone and he said, Jerry doesn't really like doing these things. I'm not so sure he's going to be interested. So I decided to go in May of 2014 to an owner's meeting in Atlanta, which was held at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, to literally just try to collar Jerry in the hallway 
uh, or as he was leaving the meeting, and I try to make my pitch in person. And as you, as you saw, because you read the story, I found him in the bar, Rich Carlton, uh, sitting with a big uh, glass of whiskey in front of himself, sitting alone at a table for four, and I introduced myself and ended up spending about three and a half hours uh, drinking Johnny Walker Blue with Jerry and talking to him about missing Johnny Manziel in the NFL draft that had just occurred um, about a month before. And, uh, and I made this pitch to him to do this story, and he agreed that night and then literally gave me almost an embarrassment of riches when it came to access this. I spent all summer with him, it felt like. I was with him on his plane on a flight to uh, Arkansas for an event there of his old college coach. I spent a lot of time with him in Oxford, California, at training camp. I was in his suite for uh, a George Strait concert, which ended up being the lead of the story. Uh, had dinner with him and toured his house late at night after a boozy dinner with him at a Dallas steakhouse. And so the access was far greater than probably I'd had for maybe any story I'd done in my career. And then it was just a matter of, I don't want to screw this up because I felt like I really got to know Jerry very, very well. And I just wanted to share those observations of him and his element and the conclusions I drew about the sort of demons he was still fighting um, in that profile for readers. How did that story um, have an effect on the type of stories you're able to do now? Um, Given, I'm assuming Jerry Jones liked the story. Um, Did that help improve you, improve your ability to make these connections with with other people in the NFL? Well, I already had, yeah, it's a good question, Matt. I already had experience making sources in the NFL prior to doing the Jerry Jones profile because the year earlier I had done a profile of Roger Goodell, uh, and I did not get access to Goodell. I, I asked to talk to him for that piece four or five times, and he kept saying no. And so that was a profile where I had no access to the person I was writing about. And, of course, the Jerry Jones piece was the exact opposite of that. But I had already made a lot of connections and sources in the course of reporting the Roger Goodell story um, before I did the Jerry Jones profile. But, um, you know, Jerry liked a lot about the story, but there was a fair amount about the story that he didn't like. You know, if you read the story, it's pretty tough on him when it comes to his record as a general manager and how mediocre the Cowboys have been uh, for 20 years when the story was published, and now we're coming up on a quarter of a century of mediocrity and no playoff wins uh, and, and everything else, and his, his record as a general manager. I don't think he loved that part of it. I don't think he liked some of the observations I had about how Jimmy Johnson is still under his skin and some of the things I quoted him saying about Jimmy Johnson and, all, and, and some other aspects of, about the business side as well, I don't think he was thrilled about. But Jerry has the thickest skin of anybody I've met in public life in my career as a journalist, and he doesn't hold grudges. And I have since seen him at a multitude of NFL owners' meetings. He's always friendly whenever I see him. I've talked with him on the phone since at length, and he has been somebody who has been a, a great resource of mine in stories that I've done since then. So despite doing a pretty tough profile after soaking up a lot of Johnny Walker Blue with Jerry <laughs> that summer, um, he's, he's, he's not held any grudges, and he's, uh, 
and you know to this day continues to to talk with me and he's and he's helpful whenever i whenever i call on him for help you said he doesn't hold grudges um are you starting to think he might start holding a grudge against roger goodell he might. I, he, he actually might. I mean, what I say doesn't hold grudges against, I should say he doesn't hold grudges against media people. I mean, there's, you could argue he's still holding a grudge against Jimmy Johnson because he's kept Jimmy Johnson, his, his old you know, uh, college roommate and buddy from the University of Arkansas, he's kept him out of the Cowboys' ring of honor. Right, right. Um, and, and, you know, arguably for petty reasons because of their, you know, uh, fallout. Uh, when Jerry fired him after they won a second Super Bowl together. But I, I think on Goodell, he, he will hold a grudge. This is a, you know, you can't overstate uh, the bad blood that now exists between Jerry and Roger because Jerry feels, the thing about Jerry is if, you, if Jerry feels betrayed by you um, when it comes to trust, that's where he draws the line. And he, Jerry Jones felt that Roger Goodell had, uh, given him an assurance last May that Ezekiel Elliott was not going to be suspended for domestic violence. And Jerry ran around um, Irving in Dallas and told his family members, his son Stephen and Jerry Jr. and Charlotte and other people close to the Cowboys, that Ezekiel Elliott was free and clear. And when training camp opened last summer, Jerry said in Oxnard, there's nothing here, and Ezekiel Elliott's going to be fine. And then a week after Jerry uh, is inducted into the Hall of Fame and has that big party in Canton, Ohio, he gets word that, in fact, Ezekiel Elliott is going to be suspended by, you know, by the call by Roger Goodell for six games. And he says, Jerry says to Roger on the phone, I'm going to come after you with everything I have. So he saw that as a betrayal, and then as we saw last fall, Jerry Jones did everything in his power to throw his body in front of Goodell's five-year contract extension mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and even threatened to sue the NFL and the members of the compensation committee, his fellow owners, if they didn't do what he wanted. And, and they feel, the owners feel, his fellow owners feel, that he overstepped his bound, it over, overstepped what he should have been doing, and uh, was totally wrong in making those threats, and now they're looking to punish him with a $2.5 million um, check that he has to write to reimburse them for all the legal fees that they accrue. Right, right. And that, and a lot of what you described was, uh, in, in a large part, the Roger Goodell has a Jerry Jones problem, um, which is one of the stories in the uh, entry uh, in the finalist uh, grouping for, for the National Magazine Awards. Yeah, it is, and and that's a story that, um, like the Vegas Raiders story, was also a tough one to put together. Um, it, that was, I mean, we had a lot of time to do the Vegas Raiders story, but Seth and I did not have a lot of time to do that piece because the the events that we were reporting on were happening so quickly, um, and a lot of the reporting for that story actually came through just in the twenty four to forty eight hours before the story was published. So that was a real up against deadline, you know, mad dash to get that story done. And, you know, Seth and I are very proud of that story because we feel as if more than anything else that had been written about the fight between Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell, um, and, and really it was a fight between Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell and other owners. I mean, Jerry was really sort of a lone wolf with only a handful of other owners who were in his corner on his 
on his fight to sort of slow down the process of Roger Goodell's next contract. But we feel that that story really, more than anything else you can find anywhere, takes you inside of, of that dispute and really gives you the contours of that um, of that clash uh, between Jerry, uh, the, own, the other owners, and, and Roger Goodell. What is it about the NFL that you like reporting on? Like, why not the NBA or, or Major League Baseball or, 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 or some other major sport? Well, I'd, I'd like to actually dig into those sports, too, at some point. But the NFL is America's sport. It is um, incredibly secretive. I, you know, I like to say, Matt, that at the New York Times, I covered the White House the Defense Department, the CIA. I was based in London for three years where I covered uh, counterterrorism operations in Europe and in the Middle East and dealt with the heads of intelligence agencies in foreign countries. All of that work and trying to dig out secrets was good training for my life now as a guy investigating the NFL. Because the NFL is just such a secretive organization, one of the most secretive in America, you know, it's led by 31 billionaire owners, uh, and 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 of course the Packers that are owned by the public, mm-hmm. and um, there there's a lot about how they do business they, that that they don't want anybody to know, and so it's a great challenge for an investigative reporter to try to find out why they do what they do, how power is exercised, and it just so happens since I started doing this kind of work at the end of 2012, that there has been a lot of crises and scandals that have hit the NFL, from the Ray Rice domestic violence case to the uh, in, in huge controversy last fall over players taking a knee during the national anthem. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm writing about the way the NFL conducts itself and exercises power at a time when um, you know, even the President of the United States is very much focused on what's happening with the league and the way the league is run. And so it's been, um, been, it's, it's been exciting as a journalist to try to figure that out and explain to the public um, you know, why the league is doing what it's doing and how it's dealing with uh, a whole set of very difficult challenges. Yeah, I was going to ask you how, how doing what you're doing now is different from what you did when you were at the New York Times. Um, but it all, it, it seems like it's maybe not that different or if it, the difference might be that it's actually harder, which is kind of crazy to think about. There are times when it feels harder. It, yeah. Um, I think that some of my friends, when they, when I told them that I was leaving the times for ESPN figured, Oh, okay. Don's now going to go on easy street here. And, uh, it's going to be a lot easier <laughs> being in, you know, covering sports and being in, you know, being in the toy box of American life, uh, than, you know, having to decipher what goes on in Washington. But, um, but no, it, it is incredibly difficult. And, uh, you know, there's a blue wall of silence, like in a police department, certainly that envelopes a lot of what the NFL does. And to try to get people to trust me, I mean, the biggest thing that an investigative reporter can do, the best, the best talent an investigative reporter can have, I think, is getting people to trust you, is, is um, you know, building, a, building that foundation with people um, that may not like every single thing you write. And then, and then, and and it, and I think part of that, part of even doing that, is explaining uh, to a source who may not like that next story that you're doing, why you're doing it, and how important the truth is, and and still trying to 
manage that relationship so you can go back to that person on another day, uh, which is not always easy. And, uh, and so that skill set that I learned during my 16 years at the New York Times certainly um, has been, you know, I've been using that often uh, as an investigative reporter for ESPN. Well, what made you leave the New York Times uh, back in 2012? Why, why make the jump to ESPN? Well, I, you know, I had an opportunity. I had more than one opportunity um, to possibly become an editor at the Times. And I tried it out in 2008, um, the year uh, that Obama was elected president. I was a, what they call a player coach. I was writing stories that year and also editing stories and attending a lot of meetings. And I just found it wasn't for me. I didn't like being chained to a desk. Um, you know, the, the, the life of an editor is just so different from the life of a reporter. And I got spoiled because at the times I had been um, in New York initially, then in Washington for six years, then I was sent to London for three, where I was traveling around Europe and the Middle East and back to the the United States on some stories, and then I was back in New York, and then I was sent to Miami on the national desk, uh, and I just got spoiled and felt I wanted to continue to write and be a reporter. Um, you know, I was a frustrated sports writer, Matt. I wrote two books about sports while I was at the Times, uh, one about presidential golf, pull first off the tee, and another one, a biography of Babe Dietrichson Zaharias, the great 20th century multi-sport athlete. And so I just um, when ESPN called me and, and they called me in August of 2011 with this opportunity, I was surprised at how excited I became, how quickly I became excited and how I thought to myself, well, you know, there have been a lot of stories in sports that I, I kind of wish there had been somebody who could dig into what's really happening here and, and, and sort of tell detailed explanatory stories about, you know, how power works and why things happen the way they happen, and now I've got an opportunity to write the stories that I've been wanting to read, and that's a great privilege for any writer to have um, to be, you know, to be asked by somebody to go do the kind of work that you wish others were doing more of. And so I, I, I just jumped at the opportunity, and I've had a great time since. What's it like to work um, for a for a media company? I guess that has. Um, surrounded by, when I think of the magazine, especially, I think of like the amazing, like stable of writers who are there, like like Seth uh, and Wright Thompson and Tom Juneau and Kevin Van Valkenburg, and I know there are probably others that I'm missing. Well, what's that like to be within that kind of a um, that workplace with with those types of people? I, I, I mean, it's incredibly exciting and and feels like a great a great honor and a great privilege. Um, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of talent like that at the times, um, as well. I mean, a lot of incredibly, incredibly talented writers and reporters there too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's sort of a heady thing to think that you're, uh, you know, that Tom Janot, who's been one of my writing heroes forever is a colleague and, and has now become a friend and, and Wright Thompson, somebody whose work I admired long before I joined ESPN is, is, is now one of my closest friends. And, and, you know, it, so yes, it's, it's just, it, it, it feels great. And it's, uh, it's an honor and, you know, it really is like an all-star team of talent um, that, that, that uh, ESPN has assembled. And knock on wood, let's hope they, we can continue to do this for a, for a long time to come. 
let's talk about the the Sunday long read uh, as well as the podcast here for a little bit. Um, the podcast you're doing, well, it, you both do both Sunday long read and the podcast with Jacob Feldman, who is a reporter at Sports Illustrated. Um, how did how did that entire project come about? That that came about completely by accident. So in 2014, or it might even been the end of 2013, I started every weekend, either on Saturday or Sunday, just tweeting out on Twitter the half a dozen stories from that week that I liked. And I would call it the Saturday long read if I did it Saturday, or the Sunday long read, one, two, three, if it was Sunday. And I did it for about a year, and I found by the end of 2014, a lot of people were telling me they enjoyed it, that they looked forward to it, that these were stories that they then would sort of favorite and save and read the coming week. And then a couple people who really liked it suggested to me to start a newsletter. And so I threw out that idea at the end of 2014 on Twitter, and Jacob, who at the time was a senior at Harvard, uh, replied to the tweet and said, well, if you want help doing that, I'm happy to help. You know, the stories you've been putting out have been part of my journalism education. So Jacob and I started having conversations, and I'm, I'm technologically illiterate. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to start a newsletter. I wouldn't know how to produce it. Uh, but Jacob has all those bases covered. And he's also somebody who's incredibly well-read and smart and loves long-form the way I do. And so we started it. We kind of did a beta, couple of newsletters. And within just a couple of weeks, we had a couple thousand subscribers. Like, very quickly, mm-hmm. a lot of people subscribed. And I, it was very encouraging. And so we just kept it going. And, you know, we've been at it now, uh, I guess, a little over three years. And... Um, and and uh, we've got just gotten incredible feedback from folks. It's, it's, some people have told us it's become sort of like their Sunday newspaper. It's their Sunday must-read that right. they look forward to opening every Sunday because it's a compendium uh, or a compilation every Sunday of, you know, really fine work that people miss um, and that they look forward to reading. And so it's, so it's just it's been great fun. And the other part of it that's been really fun, Matt, is that we have a stable of about 55 contributing editors who recommend pieces to Jacob and me that we may miss and also who guest curate mm-hmm. newsletters. And so you have different voices writing uh, the introduction, introductory essay, uh, and, and then you just get people with different sensibilities that take over the newsletter for a week and find the stories that they like, which I... Which uh, you know, and also gives us a break because we have day jobs and we have to, right, you know, right. we have to keep we have to keep our bosses happy. So so that's been also really cool is to see um, what other people bring to it. But it also has given Jacob and I the ability to continue to do it because it's hard to do week in and week out. And when there's guest editors, we get a we get a breather and they get a chance to have a week uh, or a few weeks in a row off. Yeah, I tell you, I love the newsletter um, so much. And I was, uh, I, I think giddy is probably not even the right word. Um, when Glenn Stout, when my book came out last year, uh, and Glenn Stout contacted me and said that you uh, had asked him to write up a little bit of a blurb uh, about about my book, Running With Ghosts. And I was like, no way. I couldn't believe it. It was like, um, it was, it was almost akin to, for me in my mind anyways, getting a review in the New York times or something like oh, that. Well, that, so. that, that, that. That makes me feel so good to hear you say that, Matt. Yeah. Glenn wrote a, a fan letter. So we have a, we have a sort of irregular 
Uh, I'd like it to be every week, but but every few weeks somebody writes sort of a fan letter about something, and Glenn wrote the fan letter about your excellent book. And uh, that's the other thing that's so cool about this is that young writers will say to us that it's an honor to be in the newsletter. Um, and the audience that the, that the newsletter has developed is a pretty influential group of editors, magazine editors, uh, publishing house editors, writers. Uh, there's a lot of people in Hollywood, producers, executive producers who get it. Um, it's a really cool, eclectic crowd uh, of folks that, that, that get this. And so I think that, um, you know, young writers, the most gratifying thing to me is that young writers see it as a, as a cool thing to, yeah. be, to have a piece of their work, um, you know, uh, be showcased in the newsletter. And uh, so I just, I just love that. And that, that keeps us going. I'm just going to assume you're calling me a young writer, although I don't believe I'm young by any means. So, uh, yes, I include you in that group. <laughs> I feel like Every I'm losing. You... I feel like I'm losing that rapidly. So, so well, so, so there's a lot of weeks where I I feel like the the old guy. I mean, I certainly felt that way when I was at the Super Bowl. Uh, in Minneapolis, in the run-up to the Super Bowl, I mean, just about every writer uh, and correspondent and reporter I met was younger than me. So I definitely feel like the veteran guy, for sure. <laughs> so um, so the newsletter kind of led to the podcast, um, which you've done, I think, 14 episodes so far. Uh, we, uh, we, we kind of uh, have sometimes when we have the same guest on the show, but uh, I think that's really cool, too. Um, actually when you had Christopher Gofford on, I listened to that and I was like, Oh, I want to have him on this show right now. Um, uh, how did that, how, what, how did that come about? It was Jacob's idea. Uh, all of the best things about the Sunday long read Jacob gets credit (laughs) for, uh, really, I mean, it was Jacob's idea. Um, he, uh, talked me into doing it and trying it. It was an easy sell for me because I have been fascinated with, with podcasts and I'm a fan of them mm-hmm. and love them and want it. I mean, I would love to do one for ESPN someday and maybe, you know, God willing, that'll happen uh, sometime soon. So I, for me, it felt like a chance to flex those muscles and see how much fun it is and try it out. And, uh, and again, we've been gratified by the audience that we, that that's developed and, um, and yeah, and you and I are, we're playing in the same space for sure. In fact, I've noticed, uh, on the Apple podcast page, when you see the Sunday long read podcast, your, your pod is, you know, on, on the bottom recommended, uh, for folks. So certainly we have similar sensibilities and similar audiences. And, uh, and again, the, the, I, I think a lot of folks like listening to writers talk about their craft and how they do things, but particularly young writers. Yes, absolutely. Um, is, are, 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 are the group is the group that I've heard from the most, um, either, uh, college students or um, writers in their early to mid twenties who were just starting out. You know, the podcast that I did with Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham together, uh, I got a tremendous amount of response from folks that just loved hearing those two talk about the way they do what they do. And uh, and so we'll we'll keep doing it. I'm recording another one tomorrow, and uh, uh, and we'll just keep at it. Yeah, the right, uh, the right, and the Seth ep- episode was fantastic. Did, did Seth talk about the story he wrote in college from that was the from the point of the view of the of a bottle of beer on that episode? I think. Yes. <laughs> he actually <laughs> he, he, he he I had him Skype into a, a class of mine uh, a couple years ago, and he told that story too, and I thought it was the most fantastic thing ever. So. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's the other cool thing about Wright and Seth is they have been uh, best friends, you know, since college. And so we we talked about that, about, you know, when they met at Missouri and how their friendship developed. And, uh, you know, th- those guys have, uh, you know, they're all in for each other uh, as, as writers, as colleagues and, and, and as friends, you know, going back 20 years now. Well, Don, it's been uh, fantastic talking with you, and uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. Well, thanks, Matt. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I've been talking with Don Venata, a senior writer for ESPN Digital and Print Media, and the co-creator of the Sunday Long Read newsletter and podcast. As usual, we've linked to all of the stories we've talked about today on our website, That's at www.gangritapodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.